invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Colossians. So um, we're taking a, a little break from our mini-series as well. We were busy with church discipline and what is church discipline and Lord willing when I come back we will continue our study of that topic and then, and then go back to our regular preaching through the Gospel of Mark. We're almost finished with that Gospel but times like these where we celebrate Easter it's good for us to pause and just to focus all of our attention on, um, on this, on this truth. And today we're going to just camp out in Colossians chapter 2 and consider the power of the cross and see what Jesus has done yet again and how that is all we need for our Christian life and growth. So let's read together Colossians chapter 2 from verse 8. Here again the words of the living God. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy... And empty deceit according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised of a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, through, the faith, through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray together. Father, we ask you for your mercy. We ask you to open our eyes, for we are slow to believe. We are often dull of hearing, and Lord, please forgive us for that. But I pray that we would hear this message as if for the first time, what you have done for us. And may we stand in awe of Christ, of what he has done, who he is, that he is supreme, that he is all-sufficient. Please, Lord, open our eyes that we may see your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, beloved, Easter weekend gives us a time to focus our attention on not just the most important reality of our lives, but really of all of, of history, of all of reality, the death and the resurrection of Christ. Without the death of Christ, we are still in our sin. We would have had to bear the wrath of God on our own for all of our eternities. We would have had to be in a hopeless world alone with our sin, alone with our troubles, alone with our trials, and then after all that, go to hell forever. Without Christ, the death of Christ, there, there is no new covenant from which we get all the other blessings from God that we enjoy. But also without the resurrection of Christ, there is also no hope. We are still in our sin. If Christ is not raised, Christianity is false. It's fake. Jesus is fake if he did not raise, rise from the dead. He is not a real Savior, not the real Messiah without the resurrection. Like Paul would say as well, without the resurrection, you are still in your sin. Because a dead man cannot save anyone. But because Christ died and rose again from the dead, there is hope of eternal life. There is forgiveness and grace to transform our lives from chaotic to orderly. From empty to full, just like God did in the creation. And he's making us a new creation as well. And in the book of Colossians, when we come to the book, Paul argues that Christ is sufficient 
for the Christian life. He is enough. Having Christ is the end of our pursuit of joy. Having Christ is the end of our pursuit of meaning, meaning of life. So we're going to actually begin by looking at a little bit of the Colossian heresy. So this outline will also be on the board as well for you to follow. So because to understand the book of Colossians, you need to understand the heresy that Paul is attacking, that Paul is addressing. So we're going to look at the Colossian heresy. And one of the key words we find is the word fullness. You'll see, if you read the book of Colossians, you'll just see the word fullness, fullness, filled, filled all the time. And what Paul is doing is combating this lie that Christ is good to begin your Christian life. But now you need to go on to other things for fullness of life. Jesus is amazing to get your sins forgiven. But now you need to go into the deeper things of Christianity. Now you need to experience X, Y, and Z. And if you experience X, Y, and Z, then you will be the, the, the true full Christian. And if you do these things, these rules, these laws, and obey these traditions, then you will be truly full. Notice how this comes out in the way Paul talks about the false teachings in chapter 2. The first element of this Colossian heresy is empty philosophy. The first element of this Colossian heresy is empty philosophy. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Paul here is not arguing or saying all philosophy is evil, don't study any philosophy, but he's rather opposing the philosophy that promises fullness of life without Christ. Um, He's targeting philosophy that says, if you know this, if you do this without Christ, then you will have the true meaning, the true secret of a, a full life. That's why at the very end of verse 8, he says, that's the key. These philosophies are not according to Christ. It's the very first temptation. You can be joyful. You can have a meaningful life without Jesus. You can become God. That's the, the lies that Paul is addressing. So here's a short and a simple test of any philosophy that promises life to you. Is it drawing your attention away from Christ? Or is it drawing your attention closer to Christ? Is the philosophy in submission to Christ? In submission to the Word of God? Or is it promising you a full and joyful life without Him? That's empty philosophy. That's the first element. It's empty philosophy. A second element of this Colossian heresy is Jewish legalism. Jewish legalism. Look at chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So we see this Colossian heresy included was a form of Jewish legalism. Christ is good, he's wonderful, but now you need to just keep the feasts. Now you just need to be circumcised. Now you just need to keep the dietary laws. Now you just need to follow the new moon and the Sabbath. And when you do that, then you'll be the full Christian that God wants you to be. You see, what, you see, that's the argument. But Paul says, no, let no one disqualify you. Let no one pass judgment on you on these things because those things were the shadow. They were the Old Testament shadows of Christ. And now you have Christ. You don't need the shadows if the real thing has come. It's like going on honeymoon with a picture of my wife and I leave my wife behind. 
It's like, but I don't need you. I have a picture and I'm holding on to this picture, right? That's ridiculous. Now, that's the same. People who are clinging to Old Testament shadows is like saying, I don't need Christ. I have the shadow. I want to keep hold on the shadow. Paul says, no, that's not necessary. You don't need pictures if you have the person with you, right? He is all you need. That's the second element, Jewish legalism. Here's the third and the last element of the Colossian heresy is man-made rules and revelation. Man-made rules and new revelation. Notice the very next verse of Colossians 2, verse 18. He says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through the, its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. So this heresy also promoted asceticism, which is to damage your own body for, for the sake of attaining a spiritual secret or spiritual enlightenment, right? So religions like Buddhism, which naturally tries to kill all desires and things like that, that, that is also that is asceticism. Sorry, it's quite a tongue twister. <laughs> okay, but also maybe like fasting, right? Fasting for a long time or forbidding marriage or forbidding um, foods that God created to be enjoyed for the sake of if you do that, then you will be the full Christian that God wants you to be. Then you will have the secrets of the higher spiritual life, which these ordinary people will never understand. But that's wrong. Paul says that's a Jesus plus gospel. You see, um, they also said, Jesus is amazing, but now we need to worship angels. Now we need new revelation. We need visions and we need, we need to find the true. I found the true secret of the Christian life that, that has only been revealed to me. Nobody else have, have known this before. So if you listen to me, then you will be, have the fullness of the Christian life. It's the appeal to what we call secret knowledge. Secret knowledge. It feels good to have knowledge that nobody else has. And that's what this heresy, I think that this one reason why this heresy is so appealing, it says, we have the secret. But Paul says, verse 19, no, that's not necessarily. All you have to do is hold fast to the head, to Christ. Because from Him comes growth. From Him comes nourishment. You just need Him. If you have the head, you have everything God wants you to know. You don't need new revelation. You don't need asceticism. Because you have Him. Christ is enough. So Paul says, let no one take you captive by smart-sounding teaching, by interesting observations. So in our context, it will be like running after the every, every new book and new teaching that says, we have found the secret. There's actually, right, the whole, the book, the secret as well, that if you just know this secret then, or the heaven is for real, or the 60 seconds in heaven, or the 60 seconds in hell, or if only you knew this, or Jesus appeared to me and showed me the secrets of Greek and the secrets of Hebrew that no other Greek scholar and, and Hebrew scholar has ever known. If only you would listen to me and give me money and buy my book. Paul says, don't be drawn away by those things. Don't be so enamored by every new wind of doctrine that sounds good, but it's not according to Christ. It doesn't lead you to Christ. You see, so Paul just, Paul's answer to, to combat this is very simple. Christ is enough. If you have him, you are a full Christian. So, so this Colossian heresy in a nutshell is this. It's empty philosophy mixed with Jewish legalism, mixed with worship of angels, man-made rules, and new revelation 
all for the purpose of attaining what we can put in brackets, the full life. Therefore, Paul wrote Colossians. That's why he wrote this book, to show us, no. So here's Paul's solution. This is the second, second point we're going to consider. Paul's answer is straightforward. Christ is supreme and Christ is sufficient. Christ is supreme and Christ is sufficient. Christ is supreme because he's above the angels. Why do you want to worship angels if you have the Christ who is above every authority? You don't need the other authorities if you have the ultimate authority. Because all things have been created through Christ and for Christ. Don't need to look to these things. Don't need to pray to angels. Don't need new revelation. Look to Christ. Christ's person and his work has accomplished everything we need to be saved, to be sanctified, and to be glorified. He did everything. And here we're going to look at verse 19, 9 to 15. That, that's this, verses 9 to 15 of Colossians is the heartbeat of the book. In fact, I believe verse 9 and 10 is the key to verse summary of the entire book. So if you want to know what the entire book of Colossians is about, I think verse 9 and 10 is the summary of the entire book. Because he uses our keyword fullness and he gives out the, the main argument. Look at verse 9 and 10. It says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled with him who is the authority. Oh, sorry, uh, I lost my place here. Um, who is the head of all rule and authority. So here Paul shows us who Christ is. The first thing Paul shows us in verse 9 is who Christ is. Christ is the fullness of deity dwell in dwelling a bodily form. So he's not a demigod. He is fully God. That's the first thing we see that Paul is arguing in verse 9. Just read it again. He says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus is not a demigod. He's not semi-God. He is fully God. But he's also fully man. We see that as well in verse 9. He says, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus is fully man, and that's what we need to, be, to have him as our Savior. He needed to be God, because only God can save us from our sins. Only God can forgive us of our sins. Only he could have satisfied the wrath of God on the cross. Only he can hear our prayers and be our Savior. Only God can satisfy our hearts. Jesus had to be God, otherwise there is no salvation. But he also had to be man. Because as man, he can fully sympathize with us. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our struggles. It's amazing to say that our God doesn't just know what you are going through by his, by his intelligence, but he even knows what you're going through by experience. Because he himself, as, as the fully human Christ, experienced the whole range of emotions. Sadness, joy, even depression, loneliness, forsakenness. All of that he has, he has felt. He's felt the, the, the strong pull to, to temptation and to, and to sin, yet without sin. So as, as a perfect man, he can sympathize with us. He knows our weaknesses and he could represent us on the cross as man, dying as our substitute. Christ is the whole fullness of deity dwelling in bodily form. So who can help you like he can? Who can satisfy the human heart like he can who can know how you feel even the depths of your hearts like he can who can answer your every prayer who can know what you are thinking like he can 
No one can, because there's only one like him. There's only one who is fully God and fully man, and that is Christ. So don't look to the world. Don't look to new revelation. Don't look to empty philosophy to find meaning and find fullness of life. Look to Christ as the, as the God and man, as the light of the world, the bread of life, the Lord of lords, the Savior, the Christ, the Son of God. Amen? He is enough. So that is who Christ is. But then secondly, verse 10 shows us what we have in Christ. So first he showed us who Christ is, but then he shows us what we have in Christ in verse 10. And he sum Paul summarizes it very simply. He says, you have been filled in him. Do you see the wordplay of verse 9 and verse 10? He's, he's doing a wordplay. He says, Christ is the fullness and you have been filled in him. You have been filled with the full Christ. So there's not like a semi-Christian, second-class Christians. There's nothing like that. If you just have Christ, you have everything. You are filled with the full Lord Jesus. Notice the past tense. You have been filled. This is not something that still needs to happen to you. This is not something that if you do X, Y, and Z, then you will be filled. No, simply being in Christ is to be full. You have everything. There's nothing missing in your life if you have him. It's a done deal for every Christian. So if I would ever give you the secret of the Christian life or tell you, okay, if I ever write a book on the secret, and I would say it's right in front of you. It's Jesus. And it has always been Jesus. It's an obvious secret. So don't move on from him. Don't move too quickly from him. He's not just the beginning of your Christian life. He is your Christian life. Look at how, I like how Paul emphasizes this simple Christianity, if you might call it, in verse 6 to 7. Look at how he talks about this in verse 6 to 7. He says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, what must you now do? Walk in him. Just walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. How do you grow as a Christian? Stay with Christ. Walk in Christ. Be built upon Christ. Be rooted in Christ. And then just give thanks to God. Abound in thanksgiving. That is the ordinary Christian life. And our problem is, when we don't do this, that's where all our problems come from. When we are not walking in Him, not have, cultivating our fellowship with Him, when we are neglecting our relationship with Christ, that's when all the idols and our sin takes over. So just stay with Christ. So the secret is to see what you already have in Christ. That one, you are filled with Christ. But secondly, Paul emphasizes also that we are united to Christ. So we are filled with Christ because we are united to Christ. This, this is one of Paul's favorite terms in his letters, is the terms in him and with him. It's like really like a marriage. When two people become one, so, in a spiritual sense, Christians are united to Jesus in a spiritual union. We are no longer two, but we are one with Christ. Notice how he says this over and over again in verse 11 to 15. Just read with me again, verse 11. He says, In him also you were circumcised. Verse 12, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him. And verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him. Do you see the picture? 
Everything Christ experienced, you experienced because you are united to him. You have been, so here now we list a few things that we have because we are united to Christ. Number one, we have been circumcised. Interesting concept. Verse 11, you have been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Remember the Old Testament picture of circumcision was a physical symbol of what had to happen to the Israelites spiritually. To cut off out the sin in their hearts. God wanted a circumcision of our hearts. And now in Christ, that circumcision has taken place. The power of sin has been broken in our lives. We are circumcised. Paul also says that we have been um, buried with him and raised with him through baptism. So baptism symbolizes our union with Christ. That's the second element. Not just circumcised, but baptized. And then lastly also, God made us alive through forgiveness. He made us alive through forgiveness. And we'll focus um, on those verses in verse 13 to 14. So that's what we're going to do. Now let's just close our time together by considering the power of the cross and just walk through verse 13 to 15. One of these blessings, one of the fullness that we've received from Christ is that we have been made alive through forgiveness. Notice the first problem, that we are dead in our sins. Look at verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Paul says, he shows us our past condition. He says we were dead in our sin. Not doing what God commanded us. We were dead in trespasses. We were all guilty of breaking God's law. Think of your own life for a moment, if I, if I may. How many times have you told a lie from the day you were born up until today? How many times have you rebelled against authority, rebelled against your parents, rebelled against the government? How many times have you coveted someone's possessions, someone's wife, someone's husband, someone's children, someone's status? How many times have you gossiped behind people's backs? How many times have you committed adultery? Some of you might say, phew, at least I didn't do that sin. But then Jesus comes and says, whoever just looks at a woman with lust, with a lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. How many times have you done that? Looked with a strong passion, a strong desire for someone or something. Jesus says that's adultery. So that's the point. If you have done any of the above, and I think we have done all of the above, we are liars, we are covetous, we are idolaters, we are adulterers of heart by nature. And the list goes on. We can multiply this list by a thousand. But the point is, if you're honest with yourself, you have to recognize this reality that you are guilty before God, that you are dead in your trespasses on your own. But then Paul says a second thing that's very strange to our ears. Look at verse 13. The second element, he says, not only are you dead in your trespass, but he says you're also dead in the uncircumcision of your flesh. So we're not just dead in trespasses, we're dead in the uncircumcision of our flesh. Now what does that mean? Now remember, I think Paul here is writing to Gentile, a Gentile audience, and he's making a point that they were far removed even from the, the common grace that Israel had. They didn't receive the, the sign of the circumcision. They didn't receive the Old Testament oracles. They didn't receive the Old Testament shadows and types of Christ. So they were so far removed from God because they had no knowledge of God whatsoever. You see, the Jews at least had that blessing of at least having the Old Testament revelation to know God. 
But the Gentiles, you, we were even dead in our uncircumcision of our flesh. We were far removed from God. I think the same, I think the meaning is the same as Ephesians 2, verse 11 to 12. Listen to Ephesians 2. He says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants and promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So we were dead in our sin and we were dead because we had no knowledge of God. We were far removed. But what is sad for me, I think many of us, our times that we're living in, we're not far removed from that, even that concept. Many of us have four to five minimum Bibles in our homes and yet we have no knowledge of the Bible. Yet there's a deficiency of what even the basics of the Bible says. Many don't even know the basics of the, of the Christian faith. How much less than knowing God. You see, hearing the Bible once a week is not a relationship with God. Imagine only talking to your wife or your husband once a week. That's all, all conversation you have with her. You see, you might be passing some information, but you, there will never be a deep relationship. In a similar way, to hear God's word once a week, that's not a relationship. You don't, you, you're not trusting and knowing God. For some of you, it's once a month, once a year that you hear his word. Then you don't know God. You don't have a relationship with God, functionally at least, right? Charles Spurgeon once said, there is enough dust on some of our Bibles that you can write damnation on it. And that's, I think that's true. We were dead in the uncircumcision of our flesh. We were far removed even from the basic knowledge of who God is. Beloved, there are some of you listening to me right now that is still in this condition. Still dead in your trespasses. Still dead in the uncircumcision of your flesh. Having no hope and without God in the world. Some of you care more about just furthering your career than knowing God. Some of you care more about what other people think of you than what God thinks of you. Some of you are, would rather just want to live a comfortable life and that's all you desire. If you can just have a comfortable life on earth, then you will be happy. Instead of the uncomfortable life of obedience, of picking up our cross and following Jesus on the hard road of obedience, which is worth it. So test yourself. Where do you stand this afternoon? Do you know God? I'm not asking, do you know about God? I'm asking, do you know Him? Does He know you? But the good news is that in this deadness, in this state of hopelessness, God made us alive. He gave us grace through the cross of Christ. Now, God made us specifically alive with one thing he did. Notice how God made us alive in verse 13. Verse 13, he gives us the way. He says, and you were dead in, the tre in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So this resurrection was a resurrection of forgiveness. And he, he forgave us. Notice one word in verse um, 13, the word all. 
You know, uh, normally the Bible says God has, Christ has forgiven us our sins or we are, we are cleansed from our sins or we are, just as a general, but I love that Colossians makes it very specific. It's not just some of it. He, he forgave us everything. Past, present, and future. All our sins are gone. Don't read over that too quickly. Don't move away from this verse too quickly when you read it alone. Let this truth, how would your heart look like if you really believed this? That all your sins are gone. That there is no condemnation left for you. What is there left to judge if God has forgiven you of all your sins? What is there to fear on judgment day if all your sins are gone? You might say, but how? How can God just forgive me? That, that doesn't sound right. How can He just say, I forgive you of all your sins? Well, He doesn't because He did it through the cross. Look at verse 14. Verse 14. By, how did He do it? He did it by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. So the image here is all our sins is like a big list of debt that we owe God. Every time we sin, it's as if the list keeps on piling up. Imagine how big that list is. Can you imagine? Every single time you've ever sinned, from childhood to the day dies, is that list. It's a massive, massive list. And notice how Paul emphasizes that this is a legal document against you. In verse 14, again, he says, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. It's something that is like it's a court case and here is all the evidence that's against you that shows you how many times you failed, how many times you've sinned. And it's there. You can't deny it. And then, in God's great love for us, instead of nailing us to the cross, He nails His Son to the cross with that document nailed Again, the picture is when someone was crucified, <clears throat> the, their crimes were written on the top, their list of crimes. And it's this picture of God nailing our list, our list of crimes against the cross, against His Son. So Jesus died and on top of His head is written, your lying, your adultery, your impurity, your laziness, your covetousness. And it's nailed to that cross. And Jesus was innocent. He didn't break any law. And yet he took our sins upon himself. And therefore all our sins are gone. And you have to believe this. I love a story by a missionary I heard from Papua New Guinea. So the missionaries in Papua New Guinea. Papua New Guinea was a very interesting mission field. Because those people couldn't even read and write their own language. I had to teach them how to read and write their language. But they were reaching out to them and they had a cult, they had a, um, a habit or a culture where if they owed you something, they would make a knot in a rope. So let's say I borrowed 50 rand from you, then they would make a, a knot to remind them. Every time they see the knot, they realize, oh, I owe you 50 rand. And so what these missionaries did in their wisdom, as they were explaining the Bible to them, they said, they taught them the Ten Commandments. And they said, every time you break one of the Ten Commandments, make a knot. Because then you owe God. You have to pay Him back. And by the end of that week, that rope was full. <laughs> full of knots. 
because they were lying, they were stealing, they were, they were coveting, they were just breaking it over and over again. And they came to the missionaries very distressed because, okay, can we bring our pig? Can we bring our, our, our animal? Can we pay back God? Because that rope is getting, is getting thick with, with knots. And the missionary said, you can't. You can't pay him back. You deserve to die. But then they told them about the gospel. They said, but God gave the sacrifice. You don't need to bring the sacrifice to God. God gave the sacrifice. He paid that debt with his own son. You don't owe him anything if you believe in Christ. And what those, those um, Papua New Guineans did, they took those ropes and they threw it in the fire. Because they believed it. They believed that Christ was enough. Do you believe it? Do you believe that for yourself? That is the good news, and that's what you should believe. Romans 8, verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If the highest authority of the entire universe has declared you innocent, all your sins forgiven, who can bring any charge against you? Again, verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. It's God who justifies. And if He justified us, then the case is done. So, beloved, this verse shows us the common way of thinking of our salvation. People think you should be saved by balancing the records, right? If you've done once and yesterday, do two good deeds today to kind of balance your records. But the truth is, salvation is not in balancing the records, but in cancelling the records. And that is what God has done. He cancelled it. He cancelled it. That is the power of the cross. It satisfied God's legal requirements over our lives. So let me quickly close for us with just three applications. Three applications to take away. Number one, Jesus gives powerful past grace. Jesus gives powerful past grace. Think of your life. Perhaps there's that one sin or one issue that you've done that you feel you cannot find forgiveness. Come to Christ. He has died for your sins. The sins you have done yesterday, the sins you have done in the week, there is past grace for that. Jesus has died for your sins and his death is enough. Come to him. But secondly, also, Jesus doesn't just give us powerful past grace, but he also gives us powerful present grace. Powerful present grace. And I think this is where we, we get stuck in the past. We get stuck in just knowing that he has forgiven us, but there is no strength for tomorrow. There's no strength for Monday morning. But here's the beauty of the gospel is that when you are in Christ, he doesn't just leave you now to yourself to sort yourself out. He, he saves you and then he gives you the grace to stop sinning. God's grace is enough to sustain you. When you feel like, how can, I cope? how can I go on? How in the world will I cope with this? How will I get through this? Jesus gives us right here, right now, grace to follow him through his promises, through his Holy Spirit, through his word. So trust in God and trust in his grace to help you overcome even your worst sin. And then lastly, Jesus also gives us powerful future grace. Future grace. One day... Jesus will come again and he will, we will be free from our sin. We will see him face to face 
And there will be no more sickness or pain or suffering ever again. So think about your life, past, present, and future. Jesus is enough. Do you need something in the past? Jesus is enough. Do you need something right now? Jesus is enough. Do you need something in the future? Jesus is enough. So look to him. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you and we thank you for your Son. Lord, he is the radiance of the glory of God. He is fully God, fully man, our Savior, our Lord, our Shepherd, our resurrection, our light, our bread of life. He and he alone is sufficient for us. So Father, please forgive us for looking away from Christ, for fullness of life. Forgive us for looking to idols, to looking to relationships, for looking to achievement and success and possessions to satisfy us when only Christ can satisfy us. Forgive us for neglecting our communion with Christ. Forgive us for thinking that it's okay to only talk and hear your word once a week. When you have promised us to have fullness of life every day as we come to the waters and ask for our daily bread. Forgive us for neglecting this relationship. For if Jesus is enough, then we should cultivate that relationship. So Father, please grant us humble repentance. Godly grief that leads to repentance. May we spend time with you. May we follow you. May we walk in you, being built and rooted in him, abounding in thanksgiving for all you have done for us. Lord, we thank you for the cross. Thank you for nailing our sins to the cross. Let that reality wash over us once again afresh, that we may worship you and love you as we ought to do. We thank you for this time. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.